If you would turn your Bibles to Psalm 2, which has been our Psalm of the Month. We will return to Joseph uh, next Sunday morning as I'll be finishing his life by sharing with you the most important thing Joseph ever said and the most important thing Joseph ever did. So next Sunday morning we'll be looking at that, but tonight we'll be looking at Psalm number two found on page 528 of your pew Bible. Each month, the pastors of our church select a Psalm of the month. Sometimes it's a Psalm that connects to our sermon series. Sometimes it's just a Psalm that we look forward to learning. Either way, each month we sing that Psalm in morning worship. There are so many biblical and historical reasons for doing this, for making sure that the Psalms occupy a place of honor in our worship. Without going into all those reasons tonight, let me just say that the Psalm of the month is designed to give us the delight of singing God's word back to him. Tonight, I want to consider with you the Psalm of the month, Psalm 2. To begin... Think for a moment with me about the book of Psalms in front of you on your lap. It's quite unique in so many ways. For one thing, it is the largest book of the Bible, and it stands at the center of the Bible. I don't know about you, but when I open an unfamiliar Bible, I often orient myself by finding the big middle, the Psalms, and working from there to whatever passage I'm looking for. But the Psalms are unique in other ways as well. The other books of your Bible generally have one author. They were written at a particular time to a particular audience. But the Psalms are a collection of poems. We know from God's word that they were written at various points in history, sometimes separated by hundreds of years. Like any collection... The day came when under God's sovereignty, the collection was closed and the collection you have in front of you was set in place. When this work was completed, the editors, probably priests, set a two panel door, a two panel door at the entrance of the Psalms. Psalm one and Psalm two together form the door to the whole of the book of Psalms. Together they address the main message, the great theology that stands behind the book. Psalm 1 introduces the central theme of the law of sin and of righteousness. It is a deeply personal psalm. The psalmist says in Psalm 1, Blessed is that man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He delights instead in the law of the Lord, and he becomes like a tree that flourishes. Psalm 2, on the other hand, looks up from the law and our own heart and looks out to the world. Dale Ralph Davis, an Old Testament commentator and pastor, puts it this way. Psalm 1 asks, where are you going? And Psalm 2 asks, where is the world going? And Tim Keller tells us that Psalm 1 warns us about being attracted to the sinful world. And Psalm 2 
warns us about being intimidated by the sinful world. The first psalm brings the law and blessings into view, and the second brings kingship and the future into view. Both are about blessing. One, the blessing of him who walks in God's paths, Psalm 1, and two, the blessing of the one who shelters in the future in the coming King and Messiah. These Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, together introduce us to the two great themes, not just of the Psalms, but of the whole of the Bible. The Bible is a book from first to last about sin and sovereignty, about our hearts, Psalm 1, and our future, Psalm 2. The psalm before us tonight, then, is extraordinarily important for our understanding of the Bible. Handel was quite right when he used Psalm 2 as the introduction and inspiration for the famous Hallelujah Chorus. At the musical high point, maybe the greatest moment in Western music, Handel wrote these words, The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Those words were taken from the book of Revelation, but before they were sung in Revelation, they were said in poetry in Psalm 2. And that is the message of this great psalm. As you probably know, kings, the first king, I believe the king of England, stood when he heard the hallelujah chorus. I'll ask you to stand as we hear the great coronation hymn of God's Messiah, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do look at this moment for refuge in your son, to be blessed in him, to hear his word preached, and to grow through the preaching of his word. Now bless us, strengthen us, and prepare us to come to the table, for we pray it all in Jesus' name, in the Messiah's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
every time we use the word Christ, every time we say or read the title, the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be drawn back to this psalm more than any other place in Scripture. This more than any other is the psalm of the Christ. The word Christ, of course, literally translated means anointed, or you might be more familiar with the word Messiah, but it's all the same word, Christ anointed Messiah. And that is the theme of this psalm. It is the psalm of the Christ, the psalm of God's anointed king who is taken, he's taken in the moment of coronation, the moment of his crowning, and made the son of God by adoption. By this song, David and his heirs were supposed to learn that their reign was not due to their exploits. It did not depend on their supporters, and it was not maintained by their armies. Their reign, their throne was decreed by God, who took David as a son. Behind it all was the promise of God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says, quote, I will establish the throne. David, he's speaking to David. I will establish the throne of your son, his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. As David trusted in that promise, he wrote this psalm, probably for his own coronation, but also looking into the future to a greater day to his heir. Whenever David wondered how his dynasty would survive the centuries, whenever he felt small and in danger, he could go back to this moment. He could build on this rock. God had decreed. God had anointed him. Today, as Christians, every time we are tempted to believe that the world is a scary place and utterly hopeless, Whenever we feel discouraged by the opposition of the world, we also come back here just as the early church did. As you can probably tell from your Bible, the psalm has a very clear structure to it. It has four stanzas, and each stanza is made up of three verses. Most Bibles, including our Pew Bible, have a little space between each stanza so that you can see the structure for yourself. Let's briefly consider each stanza of the psalm, and then we'll see how they all together direct us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So see first in the first stanza, verses one through three, the noise of the rivals, the noise of the rivals. The psalm begins with a question. Why do the nations rage? And what's more, these aren't just saying the same thing again, but he's adding something now. Why do the peoples plot quietly, but really in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh. That's the Lord in capital letters there and against his Messiah, against his anointed. They say to themselves, let us burst their bonds apart. Let's escape their sovereignty and let's cast away forever their control, the control of the Lord and his Messiah from us. 
We know from the New Testament, Book of Acts, as you heard read by Elder Boyajan, that the author here is David. This is David writing. When David became king, it was a time of great disruption in the life of Israel. Nations like Moab, who had been subject to Israel, were now planning revolts. Not only that, but plots, plots from within Israel, were a constant threat to David and his followers. David's throne appeared vulnerable, especially at the moment of coronation, the moment of transition. Here in the first stanza, we are introduced to a great noise. It is the noise of action, plotting, conspiring, marshalling armies. The surrounding nations gather, kings and peoples, to plot the overthrow of David's throne. Especially those nations that had been defeated and subjugated by Israel see an opportunity to break their bonds, to cast away their cords, and ultimately to overthrow Jerusalem and its king. David understands their thinking. He knows what's going on. He knows politically why this is happening. He's not a fool. He grew up in the court of Saul, and he knows the drill. But his question goes deeper. Why do the nations, and even some Israelites, believe that they can overthrow the Lord's anointed, literally the Messiah? Their plotting says something about what they believe, doesn't it? The nations, and even some within Israel, believe that God's king can be toppled by their efforts. Try for a moment to imagine David, the new king. He has been anointed by Samuel years before, and now with the death of Saul, he's become king. His nation, Israel, is surrounded by hostile neighbors, barely kept in check. Meanwhile, much larger nations like Egypt stand on his doorstep. Israel to this day, geographically and politically, is a nation completely surrounded he felt that everyone was against his kingship, and he was right. So we might expect from David fear or maybe negotiations. Instead, David writes Psalm 2. He is confident. He asks why. He questions his many enemies. Do they really think that God can be defeated? The psalm is a statement of stunning faith in the promise of God in the face of continual and unrelenting opposition. In the New Testament, as you heard read earlier in Acts chapter 4, the earliest Christians understood that the ultimate fulfillment of these verses had occurred in Jerusalem at and during Jesus' crucifixion. At that moment, Herod, Pilate, and the Jews had conspired to murder David's greater son, Jesus. Now those same authorities were threatening the early church, telling them to shut up or face the consequences. The church's response was to sing Psalm 2 to themselves and to their enemies to ask their enemies what they could hope to accomplish against the anointed of God. The church today, the church today, the church tonight, 
is utterly surrounded, isn't it? For a time, for a time, the Western world was a haven for Christians. Some of the members of our church came to America, or their parents did, in part to escape the constant persecution of Christians in other nations. And then suddenly, many of you find yourself and your children surrounded once again in the very place you came to for understanding and safety. The kingdom of Christ looks incredibly vulnerable, doesn't it? We're outgunned on every level. Every major corporation, the rich, the educational institutions, the entire entertainment industry is devoted to making religious people look as bad as possible. To us, the Bible offers two great words of comfort. First, the Bible reminds us that we Christians have always been paratroopers. Christians are always paratroopers. You've heard the paratrooper quote, right? Someone runs up to the captain of the paratroopers and says, Sir, we are surrounded. And the captain looks at him and says, We're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. Christ has repeatedly told us that the world will hate us. We were built, designed to be surrounded. We're meant to be surrounded. This is nothing new, as we saw from Acts 4. But there's an even greater word of encouragement that comes in this psalm. And to hear it, we must now move to heaven and listen there. And that brings us to our second stanza, verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That means mocks them. Then, after that, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. As people of influence marshal their strength on earth, David's heart and mind are taken up into heaven. In fact, it's quite possible that David was given a vision here, that he went in the spirit up into heaven. Maybe this was the moment when he went into heaven and heard Yahweh say to Jesus, Ask of me the nations for your inheritance. Psalm 110. Either way, the key is that David gets himself up into heaven. This is a critical activity for us, brothers and sisters. We need at key moments in our lives to rise above the chaos of life here on earth and remember that God is on his throne. And that is what is happening for David. He is transported in his heart to heaven where he realizes that God is not even slightly worried or impressed with the plots against his throne. In fact, God is laughing, holding them in derision or mocking them. Not only that, but God speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them. They make plans but things just keep collapsing. God sends illness, poverty, failure, and rebellion. They cannot accomplish their purposes. Instead of backing off, David hears God's laughter, and he doubles down. 
God has placed David on the throne. Verse 6 is so final, isn't it? You have all this noise from the opponents, but then God says, As for me, I have set, I've established my king on Zion, my holy hill. What hope do David's opponents have against a king who is God's king, against a king who reigns from beside the temple, from the holy hill? The same laughter can be heard today if you listen hard enough. Nations, celebrities, generals, dictators, they seem to actually believe that they have the answers, that their legacy will go on, that the kingdom of this world will become their own. In reality, we're just one virus away from death, aren't we? One wrong turn in traffic. We're so fragile. God does not laugh at the violence and cruelty we inflict on one another, but here he does laugh at man's pretensions. He has picked, he has handpicked the ending of our story, and he has picked his king. And from heaven, Jesus reigns and cannot be removed. I shared with my students this morning in Sunday school the story of China and the gospel there. When Mao Zedong took over leadership in 1950, there were about 5 million to 4 million Christians in China. And Mao made it his purpose in life to eradicate them, to torture and murder them, and to remove Christianity from China. Today, estimates range from 45 to 60 million Christians in China. And as I reminded my students, where is Mao? He is pickled, pickled. And on display, his carcass only kept from robbing by the chemicals that are poured through it daily to keep it from decay. That is what is at stake here. The laughter of heaven, the laughter of God against mere men, weak and fragile men who think that they can claim history and make it their own story. The second stanza ends and the third stanza begins as God's laughter falls into the background, another voice is suddenly introduced. The Messiah, the anointed king, now will give his testimony. Look at verses 7 through 9, the third stanza. The Messiah says, I will tell of the decree. Here's my testimony. The Yahweh, Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's easy for us as Americans to miss the significance of these words. We don't have a king and none of us remember alive when we last had a king before the Revolutionary War. But if we had kings, like the people in Britain, we would know that every king must justify his reign. When Britain's current queen, Queen Elizabeth, took the throne in the 1950s, she was taken to a cathedral and anointed with oil by Anglican priests. 
Anglican priests uh, conducted the whole of the service. And in this way, and it's very clear if you watch it, the queen could claim the divine right to rule, that her reign was heaven appointed. And all through history, this has gone on. Governments, even ours, have to give a basis, a ground for their dynasty. Now, the ultimate claim for a king or a queen in history has been sonship. All the great kings and emperors claimed adoption into God's family at the moment of coronation. The Egyptian pharaohs claimed to be the sons of their gods. At the time of Jesus' life, Roman money had on it the inscription, Augustus, son of the divine. Now, at first glance, as modern people, we might laugh at this. But the concept is so universal, so ancient that we have to pause. Where did all these different civilizations simultaneously get this idea of coronation, the day of crowning, and adoption? Well, the answer is found in Genesis. Adam, having no earthly parents, is called the son of God. He is given worldwide dominion, and ever since then... Every nation on earth has tried to copy that pattern, knowingly or unknowingly, by claiming that their leader is not just another leader who's going to die like everybody else, but rather a son of God who has the right to reign. So what David does here is report the giving of Adam's crown to him. I will tell the decree, says David, this day, my coronation day, God has said to me, you are my son. As Adam's true heir, the son is then encouraged to ask for the nations. Notice, not just one kingdom, not just Israel, but all the kingdoms of the world. The promise is that he will shatter those who oppose him like a clay pot. We are fairly certain that we know where this idea, this imagery comes from, that it comes from Egypt, where the pharaohs would place clay pots in their temples and label the pots with the names of cities and vassals that were under their authority. And when war would break out, or a city would rebel, the pharaoh, in great pomp and circumstance, would ceremoniously enter that temple and smash the pot there in the presence of his gods. And that's probably the background for this image that the Messiah will smash the pots, the nations that resist, the peoples that resist his rule. Right from the beginning, right from the earliest days, the Jews understood and David understood that this would only be fulfilled in the Messiah. David never got close to expanding the borders of Israel to the world. In Psalm 110, the most quoted passage of the Old Testament, most quoted in the New, David clearly states to us that this is his faith. So in the book of Hebrews as well, we're reminded that God never said to the angels, you're my son. They were only ministers of the old covenant, but to the Messiah, he says, you are my son. 
Why would anyone, the author of Hebrews says, go back to Judaism, which was administered by angels, when you have a son, a Messiah? After all, says Hebrews, isn't a son greater than a ministering servant, even Moses? And then in the book of Revelation, this psalm appears twice, repeated as a description of who Jesus is and what he will do in the world. Revelation is written to the persecuted church to assure them that the future belongs to Christ and to them. So first, the psalm opens with a question. Why are the nations arrayed against God's king? Second, we're taken to heaven to hear the laughter of heaven and the constant confusion and distress that is poured out on a rebellious earth as it tries hopelessly to overthrow God. Third, the Messiah announces his adoption and the world dominion that comes with that title. Finally, now in the last stanza, verses 10 through 12, we have an invitation to wisdom and blessing. Jesus's triumph does not have to be bad news for us. Look at those verses with me. Now, therefore, says David, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord that is Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed or Asher are all those who take refuge in him. In this final stanza, David speaks once again, and this time he urges the nations to be wise. Wisdom is what leaders, kings, and princes need more than anything, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God, notice, does not demand that the leaders of the world, he doesn't demand that the leaders of the world give up all their responsibilities. Christianity is not a movement that overthrows legitimate governments. That's not what God is saying here. Instead, he urges them to serve the Lord, to rejoice with trembling, and to pay homage to the Son. To kiss the Son is an ancient way of saying, give tribute. Recognize that you are not the final authority in the world. The Bible gives us a wonderful picture of what this looks like in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, there is a majestic king, amazing king, incredibly powerful historic king, named Nebuchadnezzar. And one day, Nebuchadnezzar looks out over his amazing nation, Babylon, the wonders of that nation, and he glorifies himself. A voice from heaven cuts him off, and he loses his mind, and he becomes for a time like an animal. When he finally recovers from this, the first thing he does is to give glory to God and to acknowledge God's authority. This is wisdom. This is the wisdom the psalm calls for. Don't wait to make peace with God's king. Because, says the psalmist, you may perish in the way. In other words, disaster and death can fall on you or me at any moment. Make peace now. Be wise. Kiss the sun. I will never forget Anna Broadway's brief description of how she came to faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what she wrote. As the old Bob Dylan song says, you gotta serve somebody. For a long time, I chose to serve self, believing the lie that it was nobody. 
But after I finally realized it was somebody and a foolish, oppressive master at that, I chose the God of the Bible as he beckoned through Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe the biggest lie we tell today in this moment is that we can be neutral. Most people in our culture don't hate Jesus directly. They just ignore him. Maybe you're in that camp. You just don't feel the need to surrender to some Jewish guy from 2,000 years ago. Maybe you're thinking, well, if I'm just tolerant, if I'm peaceful, if I don't hate him, why do I need a treaty? Why do I need a treaty with him? I don't need to kiss the sun. I'm not at war. Live and let live. But the reality is that you got to serve somebody. We aren't neutral. There is no neutral. The truth is, if you have the courage to see it, you've been serving yourself from the very beginning, and so have I. What you and I call neutrality is actually self-worship. Philosophers call it autonomy, self-reign. And even they, even the unbelieving ones, will tell you that Americans are soaked in it. And here's the problem. In living for yourself, living by your own ideas, discounting the claims of Christ, you are actually at war And it's a war you can't win. But on the other hand, if you surrender, this is the wonderful thing. If you surrender, he will give you everything and more. That's how the psalm ends. The psalm could have ended by God saying, look out, or I'm coming to get you, or I'm going to smite you. Instead, the psalm ends with a blessing, a benediction. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That word refuge, you probably know, is a key word in the Psalms. It is often used of a shield or of a boulder in a hot, steamy day where you take rest in the shade. The idea is that God will shelter anyone. He'll shelter anyone who comes to him, anyone who defects from self-worship. The Psalm ends by holding out blessing To rebels like you and me, despite all that we've done, God is still willing to make peace with traitors. I mentioned at the start of the sermon that Psalm 2 is the lead up to Handel's famous Hallelujah Chorus. As I prepared for this sermon, I listened again to that great song, one of my all time favorites. But this time I did something different. For the first time in my life, and I've heard this song a hundred times, but for the first time in my life, I listened to an all-black performance of the Hallelujah Chorus. The music was gorgeous, and because these were not stoic British faces like my own, the joy and excitement was palpable in a way I've never seen before. It was deeply moving. But even more powerful for me was the introduction to the song. An African-American man, I assume uh, uh, probably a pastor, announced the song, the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus, with these words, and I want to quote him. He said this, Sinful man prefers himself to God, self-rule to the rule of God's word, and self-worship to the worship of the one true God. End quote. 
This was exactly the kind of thing Handel had in mind, but it was something I had never heard or could even imagine hearing in a white or a Western context. No one at the Philadelphia Orchestra would dare to say these words, and yet this is the meaning of that great song, and it is the meaning of the Christ Psalm, Psalm 2. You gotta serve somebody. Why not serve someone who washed the feet of his fickle friends? Why not serve someone who gave himself on the cross for his people? You don't know anyone else like this, including yourself. You're not a ruler like this, if you're honest. Why not serve a king of love and beauty and power? Why not? For he is good and he is his God's Messiah. But here's an important ending and one I don't want you to miss. No matter what you do or I do, whether you serve him or oppose him, the psalmist reminds us of this simple truth. In the end, either way, like it or not, oppose him or serve him, either way, Jesus wins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are very prone to viewing your son as only a humble savior, which he is, but to forget that he is also the ruler of the world and that none can withstand his anger. That even his closest friend on earth, John, when he saw him in heaven, fell as one dead and could only stand after receiving a special grace. May we make our peace tonight with him before his anger is kindled against us. If there's anyone here outside of that grace who has not taken refuge in him, may this be the hour of their salvation the day that they give up on self-rule and the misery of self-rule and surrender themselves to this good, this wise, this just, this loving King. For those of us who are believers, Father, how thankful we are that just as the ancient kings would sign a treaty and then have a feast, so we come to this, the table of our peace, where Jesus makes peace with us and reminds us of the peace that is ours. Fill us and strengthen us with that peace and with the presence of Christ as we turn now to the table. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.